Go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 8, but we're actually going to start for a little recap in Genesis chapter 7. We're going to start in Genesis 7 verse 17. Now the flood was on the waters, uh, the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark was moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then... The dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and, the earth, uh, and, and looked, indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, 
on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a, smooth, a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would be glorified tonight as we seek your face. Lord, we thank you that you do not forget your people and that you have remembered us like you have remembered your servant Noah. We pray that you would be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue our study through Genesis tonight, we come to our passage, and it's, it's this place in Genesis that is at the brink of human extinction, right? Like, every human being has now been destroyed. All terrestrial life has been annihilated by the floods, and the hope of all the world rests in a relatively small boat full of eight people and every kind of animal. And so we see here that just the destructive nature of sin that has resulted in the judgment of humanity. But God remembered Noah. This is actually the first mention of the word remember in the Bible. But God remembered Noah. Not but God remembered the sin of humanity. Not but God remembered the, all the evil inclinations of humanity. But God remembered Noah. And this is the beginning of a long history of God remembering his people. The Bible says that the Lord is the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithful, faithfulness. And that is who our God is. And we're going to see tonight as we study through this passage, that this, is, this isn't simply a, a children's fable. 
This isn't an ancient myth, but no, this is a true account. And this true account is actually a microcosm of God's redemptive plan. We're going to see how, as we study Genesis chapter 8, that it stirs in us longings for recreation, for new birth, and for reunion with God, and how ultimately all of these things are fulfilled in Christ. We're going we're gonna to see how uh, we see recreation, rebirth, and redemption imaged in the flood. So in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, then God remembered Noah. But what's interesting about this verse is it's actually the pivotal point of our story. It's the pivotal point of the story of Noah because there's a literary device in here called a chiasm. It's basically like a U-shape, A, B, C, D, C, B, A, right? And what has happened is that uh, the author of Genesis is retracing for us the creation in reverse, right? It, in, in Genesis chapter 7, the flood is not just judgment. The flood is actually a decreation event. Man has sown wickedness and they have reaped judgment. In Galatians it says, God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. And man has sown rejection of God and now they have reaped chaos and destruction. And what we see is in Genesis 7, 11, the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened, which undoes God's work from day two when he separates the waters from the waters. Genesis 7, 17 through 20 says, the waters covered the whole earth, which reverses God's work from day three to create the land, separating the waters from the land. The waters cover all the earth. Genesis 7, 21 through 23, God creates birds. Uh, no, Genesis 7, 21 through 23, God destroys birds, animals, and humans, which reverses God's work from days five and six. The world is essentially brought back to its initial state that we're told about in Genesis 1, 2. Right? Genesis 1, 2 says this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The world has descended back into chaos, disorder, and destruction because man had sown wickedness. But praise the Lord, God remembered Noah. So what we see here is this watery wasteland. And I, I've been picturing it lately because I've been studying it. But I was thinking, you've got this, this whole world is covered in water. And then you've got this little boat. Like the only thing that is different than everything else is like this relatively small boat in comparison to the world. But praise the Lord, God recreates the world. He starts again. And we see, we see from the point that he remembers Noah, God starts to recreate the world again. 
He destroyed the world, but then he remembered Noah. And then he recreates the world. Genesis 8.1 corresponds to Genesis 1.2. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth. That word wind is the exact word from Genesis 1-2 that is translated spirit. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters and now the wind of God is passing over the waters. Right? And that word hover in Genesis 1-2 is actually a word that's used only about birds. And it's this idea that they're brooding over their young. They're hovering over their eggs. Right? As God was going to, as God was hovering over the waters, giving birth to what he was going to create. Once again, God has his spirit pass over the waters. And what does that do? It causes the waters to recede. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. And then Genesis 8, 2, and 3. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. You're going to start to see a pattern here, right? Genesis 8, 2, and 3 correspond to Genesis 1, 6 through 8, where God separates the waters, Right? So God had brought the waters together again. He opened up the heavens and he burst forth the, the fountains of the deep, caused the waters to come together, but now they are separating once again. He closes the heaven, he restrains the waters from the deep, and the water starts to subside. Genesis 8, 4, and 5, Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. We see the separation of the waters from the land, right? The waters recede. Now God brings forth land once again. Genesis 8, 6 through 10. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. Right now we see the reemergence of plants. And also here, uh, Genesis 8, 6 through 10 corresponds to Genesis 1, 20 through 23. Before land creatures are released back onto the earth, what's released first? Birds. It's like, isn't this amazing? God's awesome. Right? Like, I don't know if, th I don't know if this gets you, it gets me. I'm like, oh, this is so cool, right? It's, it's rehearsing the creation event. God is, God is not done with the world. No, he is giving birth to the world again. 
And so we see the reemergence of plants in Genesis 8, 11. We see the, the flight of birds in the sky again for the first time in about a year. Right? For the first time in a year, the birds are flying in the heaven where they are supposed to be. Right? Genesis 8, uh, 6 through 10. And then Genesis 8, 17 corresponds to Genesis 1, 24 and 25. Jump ahead to that. This is God speaking to Noah. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now that the waters have completely receded and the dry land has reappeared, God sends, God tells Noah to send forth the animals rehearsing what God did on day six. And then Genesis 8, 15 through 19, that whole section where God speaks to Noah is, is God once again rehearsing his creation of man and his commission of man. God is not done using humanity in his world. He has not broken the agreement, but he calls Noah to care for the animals. He's in charge. He's still the one who is ruling and reigning over God's creation. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you. Bird and cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. So we see that because of man's sin, they had sown wickedness and they had reaped destruction. But because of God's character and his love, even though his judgment came, he would use his judgment to actually bring forth mercy. What's interesting about God's judgment and his mercy is that they're not really pitted against each other. God's character is whole. It's united. God can't be divided into pieces. And so oftentimes, pretty much almost always throughout the scriptures, when we see God's judgment, we also see God's mercy. Yes, God destroyed the world, but he saved the world through that same flood. Through Noah and his family, through the ark. God's judgment gives way to God's mercy and the restoration of his creation. And not only that, but what we see here in Genesis, 1 through, Genesis 8, 1 through 19, we see a picture of new creation. Right? Not, only, not only did God... Uh, bring the world back into order. Not only did he rehearse the creation event, but this points forward to something greater. Because what we're going to see later in the story of Noah is that it did not, the flood did not correct the problem. God tells us that the imaginations of man's heart are still evil continually, which, by the way, is the reason why he sent the flood in the first place. So when we read that later in Genesis 8, 
Something feels off, and it should. Because God sent the flood to cleanse away the wickedness, and now the flood is gone, and the wickedness is still here. But praise the Lord, we find that Jesus has likened his second coming to the flood. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. This is what Jesus says about the, the, the time of the end days before Jesus returns and makes all things new. Matthew 24 verses 37 through 39 says this. Jesus says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that, the Lord, that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus likens his second coming to Noah and the flood. Just like no one was aware that the flood was coming in the days of Noah, so are most unaware of the coming of Jesus. But for those who do know his coming, we enter into Christ just as Noah entered into the ark. Right? We, we, have our, we place our hope and trust in Jesus, knowing that Jesus will rescue us from the coming judgment. Jesus isn't the only one who likened his coming, his second coming, to the flood. Uh, go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses, starting in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before, by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of, commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Before the Lord comes and makes all things new, there is going to be another judgment. And our response to Jesus' delay in coming should not be scoffing, but it should be repentance. God's desire, God's prolonging of the days before the flood were so that people might repent 
Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He wasn't just building the boat. The whole time he's building the boat, he's trying to let people know that the flood is coming, but they refused. They mocked him. Just like many now mock us for waiting for the return of the Lord. But we continue to love and tell people the truth. And if you are here tonight and, and you're one of those people who, who kind of scoff at the idea or you don't really know whether or not this, you know, oh, flood. Listen, the Lord desires that you would come to him. He is prolonging the days of his return so that you might turn and repent. If you come to Jesus, he tells us that by no means he won't cast you out. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you've said about God or thought about God or done towards God or towards humans. If you come to Jesus, Jesus will forgive you of your sins and he will draw you into himself. He will be your good shepherd. He will take care of you and ultimately you will be spared from the coming judgment before God makes all things new. Jesus tells us that when he wrote, Jesus essentially, I'm paraphrasing, so I'm not going to put words in Jesus' mouth. Okay? Ooh, whoa. Um, okay, so Jesus, at the, before the tomb of Lazarus, what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. Right? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Guys, the new creation has already been commenced with Jesus. Now, it's not here in its fullness, but we all have an opportunity to partake in that as we are brought to new life in Christ. The new creation starts when Jesus rose from the dead. And ultimately, Jesus will bring that into fruition. Like it says in Revelations 21, verse 5, Jesus says, behold, I make all all things new. But guys, you don't have to wait till then because the Bible says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. And that actually brings us to our next, uh, our, our next point, which is bap uh, the flood as a picture of baptism. The flood Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, that the flood is an, is an antitype of baptism. Go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm really excited about this one. This is like a really cool topic. Uh, okay, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 says this. Oh, that's why. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So what we see here is that the flood actually, once again, as it, as it stirs in us longings for new creation, the flood also stirs in us longings for new life, a rebirth. And Peter says that all the way back then, you want to know what one of the points of the flood was? Yes, it was judgment, but it was also a picture of baptism to come for us. This is actually a common theme of God throughout the scriptures. God saves through the waters. We see it in the flood. The waters bring death and destruction, but God saves the world actually through the waters of death and destruction in having Noah safe in the ark. Noah passes through the waters to new life. The same thing happens with Moses himself in Exodus. Actually, Moses made it clear. He tried to make it crystal clear to us that uh, what happened to Noah was exactly what happened to him. Why? Because for some reason, when, they, when Moses talks about the basket that he was placed in in the Nile, he specifically uses the word ark. I don't know if those things really compare, right? There, Ken Ham built an ark in Kentucky. Some of you have been there. It's ginormous, right? And most of you have baskets at home. They're not really the same thing, are they? Except Moses said, no, 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 no. I was placed in an ark. And then where is the ark placed? It's placed into the waters of death. But Noah is saved through the waters of death and is drawn out, right? And Pharaoh's daughter draws Moses out of the water and then names him Moses, which means to draw out. Why is he named draws out? Well, because that's exactly what God does with Moses. There's another time, right? Moses, he kills a guy, leaves, flees for his life, spends 40 years in Midian, because why not, right? But then God commissions him, says, you need to go back to Egypt. He says, I can't. God wins the argument. Moses goes back to Egypt, 10 plagues, death and destruction. Oh my goodness, I know I'm recapping really quick. And then eventually Pharaoh sends the Israelites out. They go, where do they go to? into the wilderness, meandering around, kind of. They get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his chariots and his soldiers to go kill or get back the Israelites. And what do the Israelites say? Why did you bring us out here just so that we could die? Right? Why? Because there's the waters. We're stuck between the soldiers and the waters. And there's no way out except that our God makes a way where there is no way. And he parts the waters, and what happens? The Israelites are saved through the waters. God is the most beautiful storyteller you have ever imagined. Because Jesus, the first thing he does before he starts his ministry is he goes down to the Jordan River 
to be baptized. And this is a really confusing thing because baptism is a picture of washing away sin, the old life, and raising into new life. But we know that Jesus was without sin. Also, John the Baptist knew too. Jesus comes to be baptized, and what does John the Baptist say to him? I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. But Jesus tells him, permit it so that we might fulfill all righteousness. Now check this out. Jesus enters into the waters. He is a sinless man, right? But he enters into the waters, which represent death and destruction. And Jesus is plunged underneath the waters, though he does not need to be. And then he is brought out of the waters. The heavens open up. The Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. And God's voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus foreshadows his whole ministry through baptism. Right? He is sinless. He does not need to die. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus did not sin, therefore he does not deserve to be paid death. But Jesus goes willingly into the waters and is submerged. Right? Picturing his death, his sacrificial death on our behalf. Then Jesus is pulled back out of the waters, signifying his resurrection. But not only that, then the heavens open. Right? Because Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection make a way for us to come back to the Father. The heavens are opened, and then the Holy Spirit comes. What, what does Jesus do? He dies on the cross. He's buried for three days. He rises again, and then he's seen by his apostles, and then he ascends into heaven, which are now opened. And what does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit to us. And then the father says to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have been adopted. And the Holy Spirit is sent to us, teaching us to cry, Abba, Father. Like a newborn baby, Abba, Abba. The Holy Spirit is teaching us how to call to our father. Isn't that amazing? Right? And Jesus is, Jesus is rehearsing the story of God. I'm going to come. I'm going to die. We're going to go through the waters and rise again. And then you are going to be reunited with the Heavenly Father. You are be, going to be given the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that that's exactly what we do. With Jesus, That's that picture. When we're baptized, we are, re we are rehearsing the death and resurrection of Jesus. Just so that you know, I'm not like making this stuff up. <laughs> Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So just as Noah was placed in the ark and goes through the destructive waters and comes out of those destructive waters to bring new life to the earth, so Jesus went into the waters in baptism and rose to new life. And we rehearse that same story when we are baptized. Guys, it is the rehearsal of the salvation of Jesus. And like we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, it's nothing magical about baptism, right? It's not, it's not the waters. It's not like this mystical thing. Now, there is something deeply spiritual that takes place as we are confessing our allegiance to Christ through baptism. But it's not the waters that save you. It's Christ that saves you. And the baptism is a picture of that salvation. So just as the flood represents the new creation to come, the flood also represents new life that we have in Christ. And lastly, we're going to talk about redemption. Because as they leave the ark, in verse 20, the first thing that Noah does we started the chapter in 8.1, and it said, but God remembered Noah. And when Noah gets off the ark, the first thing that Noah does is he remembers God. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So we started off our passage tonight with the first use of the word remember. And we end our passage tonight with the first use of a few words. Altar, offering, and burnt offering. The first time we see an altar being built to the Lord and an offering being made to the Lord is Noah's intercession on behalf of creation. And if you remember earlier, in, I believe, Genesis 6, we're told that Noah found favor with God and that Noah was a righteous man who walked with God. So what we see here, once again, is a picture of Christ, right? Noah offered intercession. He offered an offering unto the Lord in intercession, Right? But what we'll see is that Jesus exceeds and surpasses Noah in every way, right? Noah was a righteous man. Jesus is the righteous one, right? Noah made intercession temporarily for a moment in time. 
And praise the Lord, God received that offering. But Romans 8.34 and Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Noah made an intercession on behalf of humanity at this one place in time. Jesus lives, forever lives, to intercede on your behalf. He is ever at the right hand of the Father, pleading your case. Right? Not only that, but so Noah is offering a burnt offering of animals. Jesus is himself the offering. Right? Uh, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And it says this, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice on our behalf. Right? It is a completely satisfactory offering. Jesus offered himself once for sins and has forever perfected those who are being sanctified, as Hebrews tells us. Which means if you put your trust in Jesus, your sins have been dealt with once and for all. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to confess and repent of our sins and talk to the Lord. But no, the punishment for your sin has already been taken care of. There remains no wrath for the Christian. There remains no judgment left for you because it was placed on Christ. And now you are set free and you are offered life. Noah went through the flood, right? He went through the flood waters. Jesus was plunged into them, right? Jesus did, did not only go through death, but he entered into death. And as Hebrews tells us, he has tasted death for all of us. So that by tasting it, he might destroy the power of death. Jesus took on death so that the righteous one who ought not to die did die so that he could kill death. Right? He broke it. Right? Like it doesn't work the same way it used to anymore. Right? Now, now for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, death brings life. Right? Before Jesus, death brought death. There was, there was no hope. Hebrews chapter 2 says that all of our lifetime we were bound up in torment just waiting for the day that we would die. And then Jesus came and he robbed hell of its victory. And he destroyed the power of death because death was not strong enough to hold him as Peter tells us in Acts. It was impossible for the grave to hold him. Jesus' sacrificial death was so satisfactory that it destroyed the power of death. That all who would put their trust in him no longer have to fear death, but know that they've already passed from death into life. That's why we get baptized. It's to rehearse that story. Guys, if you have been, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've already passed through death into life. 
You don't have to be afraid of death. Death is like a disarmed enemy. And every time you are tempted to be afraid of death, you remind yourself of the truth that your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it could not hold him. And because he has placed you within himself, it will not hold you either. Amen? Not only, man, Jesus is awesome. Okay, so Noah brings this temporary peace, right? He restores a certain aspect of order. God says in verse 21, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Right, so God, God turns away from He's, he's turning away from this judgment, and now he is forestalling his judgment, right? And because of this, this soothing aroma, this worship unto the Lord that Noah offers him, this thanksgiving, this sacrifice, this intercession, right? And it brings an aspect of peace. But there's still not, there might be peace in the sense that there's not an imminent destruction over their head anymore, but there's not peace with God. But Ephesians chapter two, Paul tells us that Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus came to destroy the war, to put an end to the, the war between man and God and man and each other. Jesus is our peace. Another aspect where Jesus' offering is far superior to Noah's is uh, where God says right here in verse 21, he says that he knows that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, right? We said before that that should create an ache in us. We should read that verse and we should go, oh, because that's what God said before the flood. And that's what God's saying now. There's an aspect where it's like, wait a second, it didn't fix it. And then you start to get this inclination that maybe Noah isn't this promised seed, right? When you, I, I get it, we've read the Bible like a bunch, but if you, if you start in Genesis, right, the fall happens, God promises this seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent, which gets your mind going, where is, where's this man? When's this man going to come? And, and like Pastor Mike said a few weeks back, right, we had Cain. And then Cain showed that he was not the man. And then Cain killed Abel. Because Abel, you're like, oh, there's this, he's, he's offering pleasing offerings. So like he, he brought this to the Lord and it's acceptable. Maybe, maybe this is the guy who gets us back in. But then Cain kills Abel. And then not only that, but then, but then Seth is born and people start calling on the name of the Lord and you're like, maybe it's Seth, but it's not Seth. And then what we start to see is that all of humanity starts to fall into decay till the world has to be destroyed because it's so wicked. But then we've got Lamech, Noah's father, and he looks at his son and he names him Noah, which means rest. And he says, this one will bring us Rest from our toil. And then you're like, oh, this is the guy. He's going to bring us back in. He's the snake crusher. This is it. 
But then the flood happens, and you're like, yes, he's offering an offering to the Lord, and God loves it, and it's amazing. This is going to be it. This is the new creation. But then God says he still knows the imaginations of man's heart is evil continually. It hasn't changed. But the offering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, does not just take care of the exterior, right? It's not. Baptism isn't a picture of washing the filth off of your body, right? Like Peter tells us, it's not, it's not just a bath, guys. No, this is a picture of what Jesus does, this new life. It's a death and a resurrection. It's what Ezekiel talked about in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, where God says, I'm going to take that heart of stone out of your chest and I'm going to place inside of you a heart of flesh. It's what Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 29, where he says that God's words are going to be written on our hearts. It's that hope from Psalm 119 verse 11 that we would write his word on our hearts so that we wouldn't sin against him. And we find that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His, Noah's sacrifice was an offering that brought a semblance of peace. Jesus' sacrifice brings transformation. Christians are not just better people, right? Better's not good enough. It's like Pastor Chris always says, right? Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He, made, he came so that dead people might be brought to life. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Noah's offering brings promises and blessings, right? God receives the offering and then he promises not to curse the ground again, right? They don't have to eat green herbs anymore. They're gonna be able to start to eat like fruit and stuff again, it's really awesome. The ground is going to start bringing forth uh, good things again. And then it says that God, God promises order. He promises never to destroy the world again. And then he promises order. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And aren't you thankful that God has given us an ordered universe? Right? There's an aspect where we, we have somewhat of an ability to kind of plan things out. Now, we don't want to plan things out in arrogance. Like James tells us, we shouldn't be like, I'm going to do this and that. But instead, we should say, well, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. But we live in this ordered universe. And, and by the way, this is, this is an evidence of God's grace and goodness and an evidence of who he is and that he exists. Right? Order is an evidence of God. Right? This world actually, like if I drop this water bottle, I'm not going to do it. If I drop that water bottle, it's going to fall. Right? Why? Because we live in an ordered universe and God has promised us that. And that's a good blessing. Right? That's a good promise. Praise the Lord. Right? Seed time, harvest, day and night. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and be like, the sun's not rising. No. Every day, day in and day out, God's faithfulness. Right? He continues to remember his people. Praise the Lord. And that's good. 
And that, and that is brought to us through this intercessory offering of Noah, right? But praise the Lord, Jesus brings forth much better promises and blessings. Ephesians chapter one, verse three, actually says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How many blessings do you guys have? All of them. All of them. Right? Second Peter tells us that God has given us all things for life and godliness. Guys, God's not holding out on you. Through the work of Jesus, he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He's blessed you with every good thing. The psalmist says, God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Which means that because you are in Christ, God doesn't hold good things from you any longer. If God holds something back from you, you can be confident that ultimately it would not have been for your good. God's desire is to bless. Isn't that, a, isn't that awesome? Our God is worthy of praise. So as we see in our passage tonight, Genesis chapter 8, what a rich passage it is. We see through the flood, we see this longing for the new creation. We see this longing for new life. We see this longing for reunion with God. And ultimately, though Noah brought some rest, and though Noah brought some of those things, there was a recreation that happened. There was new life offered. Life was not extinguished. And there was an aspect where there was, there was somewhat of an, a new offer that humanity could have a relationship with God. Ultimately, all of those things did not last. But now, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have all of those things in full. Jesus' new creation life begins in us here and now. When does eternal life start for the Christian? As soon as they come to Christ. Eternal life is eternal. It starts now and goes on forever, right? Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come, right? John tells us that we're called to be born again, right? That new life that is found in Christ. And then ultimately we find our reunion with God through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus died so that the the gates of heaven could be opened again. What's so interesting about uh, the death of Jesus is when he dies, the, the veil is rent in two, right? The veil separating the holy of holies from the rest of the world. And the veil is ripped so that we might be able to once again enter into God's presence. We are reunited with God once again. So where do you find yourself tonight? Right? Do, do you find yourself, like, in our, in our story tonight, where do you, are, you, are you in Christ? Are you safe in the ark? Or are you not in Christ? Are you in the destructive waters? Do you find yourself outside of the safety that God has provided? If you do, Put your faith and trust in Jesus today. 
There is no reason. God tells you to come. The Bible says that that those who are in Christ were ministers of reconciliation, as if God were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. That's what I'm doing right now. Like, I'm saying the words, but it's as if God himself is saying, come, come back home. You don't have to stay away. And that is a word both to those who do not know Christ yet and also to the Christian. Come home. Even if, even if it was just you sin today and you feel like you're, you're starting to stray. No, you can come home now. You don't have to wait to repent. It's never too early or too late to repent. You can repent right now. And when you repent, you find new creation, new life, and reunion with God through Jesus Christ. Amen?